according to the legend, Frein Selak of Croatia is considered by many to be the world's unluckiest man. Or luckiest, on your perspective. Legend has it that in 1962, he was in a train accident that killed 17 passengers. In 1963, he was in a plane crash where 19 people lost their lives. In 66, Frayn was riding a a bus that plunged into a river and four passengers were killed. In 1970, the fuel fuel tank on the car that Frayn was driving exploded on the highway. In 1973, Frayn had another freak car accident when his fuel pump leaked gas and it sent flames spewing at him. Fast forward a few years, in 1995, Frayn was hit by a bus. And in 1996, Frayn was thrown from his vehicle as it collided with a truck and exploded. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm going to say that while likely you haven't been hit by a bus, I'm going to guess that everyone, or at least everyone over the age of 12 here this morning, has felt a little like Frayn Selak, at least at one point in your life. Again, maybe you weren't hit by a bus, and maybe your car didn't explode, but maybe you lost your job the same year that you had a parent die. Or maybe you got some devastating news about your health the, the same year that you had a child go to college and leave the home. Or maybe your best friend at school didn't want to be your friend anymore the the same week that the girl you wanted to ask to prom turned you down. I imagine you can point to a time in your life or maybe even a few times where it just seemed like things were not going your way. Until recently, I would have said that the year 2020 was the hardest year that my wife and I had gone through together uh, in almost 10 years of marriage. I would imagine that many of us uh, agree with that sentiment. I think that the year 2020 was not an easy year. I would have made that statement until the year 2023 came. In January, my mother was diagnosed with a muscle myopathy called IBM. It's an incurable condition where her muscles are essentially weakening and will continue to do so. And, and the likelihood of her being in a wheelchair the rest of her life is, is fairly substantial. Additionally, in January, uh, at the time, our not-quite-one-year-old uh, contracted RSV, which then set off a chain of events where our kids have, were just sick for like the first part of the year. In February, we found out we were pregnant for, our, uh, for the fourth time, only to experience a miscarriage in March. In April, we traveled to Atlanta to spend time with family for Easter, only for our kids to get sick for the third time in the year of 2023. And we didn't even get to go to church on Easter. And we're good Christians. We don't go more than, we, we go more than twice a year, right? <laughs> at the end of April, I woke up early on the 26th to find out that my dad at 56 years of age had had a stroke. Something we continue to navigate to this day. In May, after roughly four weeks of driving back and forth every weekend to Atlanta to help my mom with things around the house, decision-making matters that needed to be uh, made. Uh, We traveled to North Carolina for a week of vacation. I was with my wife's family, only to get sick again. 
got one day at the beach. I guess we should be grateful for the one day, right? At the beginning of June, my grandfather died. This is my mom's dad. We had to delay his funeral because my dad couldn't travel and my mom couldn't leave my dad. Last Friday, I preached his funeral. To to paraphrase your own pastor's sermon from a few weeks ago, it has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. Now, why do I share this? I don't share this for pity, nor do I share it because I just want you to, to see how unlucky I feel right now. As a Christian, I don't exactly uh, believe in the concept of luck, or rather providence. Instead, I share this with you because I imagine that all of us have experienced a time in our lives when life was just plain hard. Maybe you even find yourself in a season of difficulty right now. Sometimes the world around us seems chaotic. Life seems to spiral out of control. We're like we're on a roller coaster at Carowinds, but we have no harness on. Sometimes life is hard. But the difficulty and challenges we face in this life do not negate the intrinsic truth that Jesus is on his throne and that he is ruling powerfully even amid chaos and what may even appear to be hopelessness. Beloved, part of the hope that we have as Christians in the gospel is not solely that we are saved from our sins, though that's a huge highlight, but that we are saved to a king. We belong to a good and mighty king whose kingdom will last forever. Our text this morning directs our attention to Christ, the once and forever King. You may notice the, the play on words as you uh, remember uh, from your reading of T.H. White's classic tales of King Arthur, the once and future King. This description throughout the lore of King Arthur refers to the belief that Arthur was once King and that he would eventually return to be King of England again. Jesus, however, is not the once and future King. He is the once and forever king. He is the king past, present, and future. He is the king of eternity. He is the powerful king who reigns sovereignly and his people trust him completely. Our text this morning beautifully depicts the powerful reign of Christ, our once and forever king. So I want to invite you to locate the book of Psalms in your copy of the Christian Bible. As it has already been shared, I'm a guest speaker today. I look out, I see a few faces that I recognize, but for the most part, I don't know any of y'all from Adam. I assume that most of you are members in good standing here at Emmanuel Bible Church, but I also assume that there's at least some uh, who may not even be Christians here this morning. And if if that applies to you, Uh, then I want to speak to you directly for just a moment. We're glad that you're here. I think I can say that on behalf of Emmanuel. Uh, We're glad that you're here this morning. Maybe it's the first time you've been to church in a long time. Maybe it's the first time you've ever even attended uh, a Sunday service at a local congregation. Maybe you've never even opened a Bible before. If that's the case, 
Uh, again, we're glad that you're here. I would like to uh, invite you also to turn to the book of Psalms. Uh, if you have a copy of the Christian Bible, if you don't, uh, you can actually download one on your phone. I recommend the ESV app since we'll be in the English Standard Version this morning. But as you turn with me to the book of Psalms, we will find ourselves in the chapter 110. Uh, please feel free to use your table of contents to find your place. Generally, the book of Psalms is considered to be in the middle of the Bible. So if you just open up in the middle, the likelihood of you opening up to the Psalms uh, is fairly high. We're in the Old Testament this morning. That's where the book of Psalms is located. God's word is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Two parts of a whole, if you will. Again, if you're not a Christian, if maybe this is the first time you've been at church in a while, uh, you'll notice that there are some numbers on the page, the big numbers of the chapters, the little numbers of the verses. We're in Psalm chapter 110. There are seven verses in this chapter, and we will consider this psalm in its entirety. So Brad told me I had about an hour and a half to preach. So it's on him, not me. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, the second half of God's Word, as it is referenced at least 14 times. Now, as we prepare to hear from God's Word, I simply want to remind us that the words I'm about to read from Psalm 110 come to us this morning with the same power and authority as if Jesus is standing right here in front of us. Psalm 110, hear now the word of God, for the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God lasts forever. Amen. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to know, and hearts to understand the reading and proclamation of your word. Amen. Now, if you're a note taker, I want to give you three headings as a guide for the layout of this sermon. This is not the outline. I just want to kind of give you, you're, you're not maybe used to my preaching style. I want to give you just three headings just to jot down on your notes. The first word that I want you to write down is the word exposition. And if you're especially studious, uh, next to that you can add the question, what does it say? So exposition, what does it say? Then give yourself some room, write the word doctrine. If you want to include the question, what do we learn? And then again, finally, give yourself some more room, write the word application with the question, how do we live slash think? Again, that's, that's really not the outline. It's simply just a helpful guide to show you uh, maybe my train of thought uh, and demonstrate the flow of this sermon. Now, as we begin walking through the 110th Psalm, 
we are faced with a unique setup that we don't often see in most other psalms. Now, I'm going to contend this morning, loosely, that there is a subtle narrative nature to this psalm. There's a subtle narrative nature to this psalm. You see, the psalms are prayers or songs written as expressions of worship before the Lord, expressions of thankfulness and gratefulness, expressions of praise, expressions of lament, and so on. There are also what we call the royal psalms, which are said to, quote, present the Davidic monarchy as the vehicle of blessing for God's people. Some of these are prayers. Some are thanksgiving. All relate to the Messiah, the ultimate heir of David, either by setting a pattern or by portraying the king's reign in such a way that only the Messiah can completely fulfill it or by focusing on the future, end quote. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm that speaks about the heir of David, but there is a specific focus in this psalm that leads me to believe that the psalmist David, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gives us insight into a very real, very important conversation that takes place among the Godhead. Unlike other messianic uh, prophecies, where more general language is used to talk about the Messiah or what he would do, such as maybe Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. A prophecy like this speaks to what the Messiah, uh, speaks to what happens to the Messiah and what he accomplishes for us, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, for example, speak specifically that the Messiah would die on a cross. It's a, it's a general uh, prophecy, if you will. Meanwhile, Psalm 110 shows us a conversation that actually happens with the Messiah. I want to give you five observations from this text to guide the exposition side of this sermon. The, the first observation is that Jehovah is speaking to Adonai. Jehovah is speaking to Adonai. You can look at the first six words that David writes in verse 1. The, the Lord says to my Lord. In the English, this may seem like an odd way to start a sentence. But when we dive a little deeper into the Hebrew words that are used by the psalmist, we see that he doesn't, he doesn't repeat words. You'll notice more than likely in your copy of God's Word that the first Lord is in all capital letters. And then the second Lord simply has the first L capitalized. This signifies something for us in English so that we can better understand what is being written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the first Lord is translated in modern language Jehovah. Or maybe we would say Yahweh. Jehovah, of course, was a modern name for God that was taken from the name Yahweh that the Hebrews wouldn't even say aloud. It didn't have any vowels, so they would often combine the letters for Yahweh with the vowels uh, in Adonai, and they would get Yehovah, or as it's been Latinized into English, Jehovah. And so the first Lord that David addresses in, is the Hebrew name for Jehovah. The second Lord is the Hebrew word for God, Adonai. So the Lord said to my Lord, Jehovah said to Adonai. Right here. There's a, uh, there's a triune nature 
to this psalm. It, it has triune undertones. Of course, we don't necessarily see specifically the Holy Spirit as being mentioned. We do certainly see that David, I believe, is distinguishing between God the Father, Jehovah, and Adonai, God the Son. If we needed further clarification, Acts 2, 33-34, which we'll reference again here in a few, actually tells us uh, that David is 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 telling us about this conversation that's happening between uh, God the Father and God the Son. It's it's a psalm written by David, but it's not a psalm about him. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is giving us a glimpse into an interaction between the Father and the Son. And what happens during this interaction? Staying in verse 1 for a moment, we observe simply that Adonai is seated at the right hand of Jehovah until all his enemies are defeated. Adonai is seated at the right hand of Jehovah until all his enemies are defeated. Jehovah says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, we're getting a glimpse into this Trinitarian conversation, a conversation among the Godhead, as Jehovah tells Adonai to sit at his right hand while all of Adonai's enemies are made a footstool. All of his, all of his enemies are being conquered or subdued. And all of this takes place, according to verses 2 and 3, while Adonai's reign is positioned at the right hand of Jehovah and his rule is carried out on the earth. Adonai's reign is positioned at the right hand of Jehovah and his rule is carried out on the earth. In verse 2, we are told that Adonai's rule is carried out in the midst of his enemies, that his scepter is going forth, and even in the midst of his enemies, even in the midst of those who oppose him and refuse to bow their knee and worship to him, Adonai is reigning and his power is going forth. He rules over all the earth. His scepter will go forth. That is the the sovereignty of Adonai. The power of Adonai will go forth until all of his enemies are destroyed or subdued. And not only is Adonai's rule carried out in the midst of his enemy enemies, but Adonai's rule is carried out among his people. We see that in verse three. It tells us that as Adonai rules at the right hand of Jehovah, as his enemies are made a footstool, his people willingly worship. His people don't have to be destroyed because instead they are saved. The salvation of his people is yet another evidence that Adonai, the Lord, is reigning. Because his people offer themselves to him freely. They they worship freely. He's referring to what's happening this morning. We willingly, freely worship our Lord who has saved us. And as he rules... David tells us that Adonai is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Adonai is the perfect prophet, priest, and and king. In verse 4, David places the rule of Adonai in a unique position that was virtually unheard of in that day. David says Jehovah will not change his mind and that Adonai will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Think back with me to Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we're told that Melchizedek was the king of Salem and the priest of God most high. 
He held a, a dual position of both priest, of the priest who, who even spoke prophetically, and the king. His name actually relates to his position. Melchizedek means uh, king of righteousness. Again, this, uh, the, the dual positions are even seen not only in, in just what the roles that he held, but even in his name. It is unique that David would point to Melchizedek, not Aaron, to describe Adonai's priesthood and his kingship. Melchizedek was not from the tribe of Levi, obviously because he actually preceded that time period. As you may know, the line of Aaron, the Levites, were appointed for the role of priest. It's odd, but there's a reason that David points to Melchizedek rather than Aaron. Part of this is because Melchizedek held multiple roles of priest of the functional prophet and the king. He holds that dual position. He's the king and the priest of Salem. And David's point is that Adonai is not solely a king. He's not less than. But he is so much more than what we think of when we think of a king. Adonai is a righteous king. He is a savior king. His rule is a rule of righteousness. Finally, in verses 5 through 7, David tells us that Adonai is executing judgment. In verse 5, David says, The Lord, Adonai, not Jehovah, is sitting at your, that's Jehovah's right hand, and he, Adonai, is executing judgment. Look what it says. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Adonai is ruling from the throne over the earth. He is ruling over the age. He is ruling over all of creation. Adonai is sovereign over everything you see and everything you don't see. Now, here's how we tie all this together. Jesus, of course, is Adonai. I imagine you all knew that's where we were going. I wasn't subtle. We know that Jesus fulfills Psalm 110, but but how? How do we see this? What do we learn from this? I think we see it most clearly in the incarnation of Christ, that is God the Son taking on flesh to dwell among us, and at the ascension of of Christ. We see this played out in the incarnation and the ascension, where Jesus ascends to the Father following his triumphant resurrection from the dead. So first, as we consider what we learn from this passage, as we consider the the doctrine behind it, what we learn about God, we see that the incarnation confirmed Jesus's role. The incarnation confirmed Jesus' role. Orthodox Christian doctrine says that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That's what we call the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Jesus is truly, really, fully God, and he is truly, really, fully man. Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh, and he is the son of God according to the divine. So in Psalm 110, David is writing about his real, literal, physical descendant. Of one who is to come. David is looking forward. To a greater descendant. A greater David. 
And what does David do? David bends and he kneels, metaphorically speaking. He calls his descendant, my Lord, my God. He calls him Adonai, a name that was used out of reverence for God. This is very intentional by the psalmist. He is looking and seeing, empowered by the Holy Spirit, his descendant that is to come, and he says, that is my God. It's intentional. David wants us to see the clear distinction between the Father and the Son in this passage. His descendant is coming. Jesus actually explains this in Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46 Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus tells them, he tells the Pharisees, even David knew that his descendant was more than a king. He is a king. He's more than a king. He is king and Lord. He is king and God. He is both the earthly king and the divine king. Of course, this harkens back to David rooting Adonai's position in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, not the tribe of Levi. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that even the line of Aaron could not offer. These roles never overlapped with exception of Melchizedek. You had the prophets who typically lived in the wilderness and would come in from time to time to rebuke the people. You have the priest who offered sacrifices for the people. And then you had the king who ruled the people. These are three separate offices. They never overlapped with, again, with the exception of Melchizedek. But Jesus does it all. Jesus is the prophet who teaches us. He's the priest who intercedes and sacrifices for us. And he is the king who rules us. But Jesus chose to take on flesh to accomplish our redemption. You see, he's the prophet who came and told us the gospel. He's the priest who does more than just offer a temporary sacrifice. He offered himself on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against wicked sinners. And he is the king who rose to life again, defeating sin once and for all, now ruling his people and all the earth. The incarnation confirmed Jesus' role. Secondly, the ascension established Jesus' rule. So the, the incarnation confirms his role. The ascension established Jesus' rule. I want you to go back with me to the book of Daniel, verse 7. The book of Daniel, verse 7. You're going to find verse 13. Verse 13 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Let's stop right there for a moment. Some are going to read Daniel 7 
as referring to what we call the, the second coming of Christ, his return at the end of the age to bring about the consummation of heaven and earth where his people will reign with him for all of eternity. This is something that all of us believe. If you're a Christian, if you believe the Bible, we believe Jesus is coming back. Now, I don't want to dogmatically say that Daniel 7 is not referring to Jesus' second coming. Often uh, in prophecy writing, uh, we see double meanings or dual fulfillments. Uh, sometimes you see an immediate fulfillment. Some of the prophecies that David fulfilled were then uh, later fulfilled greater in Christ. However, if we read the rest of verse 13, we see that one like the Son of Man isn't coming to earth. Look at verse 13. Let me read it again. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to ancient of days and was presented before him church i don't think daniel seven thirteen is referring to jesus's second coming something that we await right now in our future it refers to his ascension when he entered into the presence of jehovah the ancient of days god the father having been resurrected from the dead for our justification Daniel 7, verse 14 continues. After he ascends into the presence of the Ancient of Days, he is presented before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I believe that Daniel is directing our attention to the ascension and subsequent rule of Adonai. So following the ascension to the Father, the Ancient of Days, what does Jesus do? He's been with his disciples. He's he's appeared to multiple witnesses following his death, burial, and resurrection. He ascends to the throne room. And what does he do? The very first act is that Jesus sat down. Jesus sat down. When, When was Christ seated at the right hand of the Father? It's at the ascension. He left his throne to save his people. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. And following his resurrection, he ascends to the Father. He ascends to the Ancient of Days. Jesus goes in and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And he has been seated there for the last 2,000 plus years. And he rules even now. This is all throughout Scripture. Ephesians 1.20 tells us that God raised Jesus and he set him on the the throne. It's It's a fluid motion. Jesus is raised, Jesus appears to his followers for a short time, and then he is brought back into the presence of the Father Jehovah. Picture this, just for a moment. This is amazing. Jesus walks into the throne room. He's got scars on his hands, on his feet, in his side. There's thunderous applause. The Son has returned victorious. He is triumphant. He is the victor. It is loud. Y'all sing loud. I promise it was louder. The promise of God that was made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 has been kept. The Son has returned and the Father looks at the Son and He says, Come sit. Come and sit. 
rule at my right hand. All of your enemies will be made the very footstool you will use to prop your feet up as you rule and as you rest from your conquest. Hebrews 10.12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. Why? Because He had declared that it is finished. And because it is finished, He sits. And then what does He do? Is His first act of authority. He does two things. He pours out the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 33-34. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus ascends, he sits and he rules and he pours out the Spirit just as he promised for his people. What else does Jesus do? Jesus binds the strong man. Jesus binds the strong man. Church, when when Satan tempted Jesus, think back to Matthew chapter 4, to Luke chapter 4, and Mark chapter 1. Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And in a sense, they were actually his to give. Not in a sovereign way, not in a providential sense, but in the sense that Satan was the god of the age. In passages like 2 Corinthians 4.4, the English translated as, translates it as God of this world. But the Greek word isn't cosmos that's used. It's aeon. Aeon meaning it's an age, a timed rule, not a permanent rule. You see, Satan did not have an omnipotent rule. He had a limited rule subject to the power of God prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you can reference the book of Job as an example of this. As Satan walked to and fro from the earth and then tempted Job. So when Satan says to Jesus, you don't have to die for all of these people. You can just bow down and worship me and I'll let you rule over the kingdoms of the world. In a sense, it was a real, legitimate, God-sized temptation. Satan says, bow down and worship me. You don't have to die. I will give you these king- the, all of these kingdoms. But Jesus says, no, I'm not interested in receiving them from you as a gift. I'm going to bind you and I'm going to take them from you. You see, Jesus binds the strong man and then he takes all of his stuff. Luke eleven twenty one through 23, we're told this. Jesus says it when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus rules heaven and earth because he has overcome the grave. He has defeated sin, and he's defeated Satan. He has bound the strong man. Jesus deposed Satan as the temporary ruler of the age because Jesus is the eternal king, even over powerful, though finite, rulers. Now, how is Jesus' rule made manifest? We see that His power is exercised throughout the earth. 
His power is exercised throughout the earth. Jesus is ruling at the right hand of the Father over the earth until all his enemies are under his feet with death, uh, under his feet with death, the final enemy being destroyed at his second coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27. We've, we've read this already, tells us, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Church, Jesus rules now. And when he returns, all of his enemies will be destroyed or subdued. And the proof will be the destruction of his last enemy, which is death. Beloved, the gospel is going to advance and everything that we see and understand to exist will be brought into submission before Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the king of the United States. Jesus is the king of Japan. Jesus is the king of Iraq. He's the king of Ukraine. He's the king of Russia. He's the king of China. Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is the king of all creation, a creation that he upholds by the very power of his word. As the gospel is preached, every king, every kingdom, every people will find themselves in submission to Jesus. Every sickness, every disease, every natural disaster, every enemy will be destroyed. Even death. Jesus will return with all his enemies in submission and conquered, and he will destroy the final enemy and his people. Those who are alive when he returns and those who are raised to life again in him will enter into our final rest in his eternal kingdom, the new heaven and earth forever. Until then, until all of his enemies will be made his footstool, he must reign. So this question How does the church respond? How does the church respond? How do we respond to this truth? Either by how we live or even by how we think. If you haven't heard anything that I've said so far, I want you to hear this. Jesus' eternal reign as king brings hope and comfort to his people in the midst of a hopeless and chaotic world. Jesus' eternal reign as king brings hope and comfort to his people in the midst of a hopeless and chaotic world. Our first response is to believe in the rain. Not in the drizzle, but in the rain of Jesus. Our first response is to believe in the reign of Jesus. Michael Lawrence has this to say regarding the reign of Jesus as king. Quote, the kingdom was lost to us at the fall and pictured for us as a shadow in the history of Israel. But now, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated anew. Sin has been defeated. The church lives out the life of the kingdom by the power of the Spirit. And we look forward to the day when the king returns and consummates his reign, a reign that will have no end. You've likely heard the phrase, now and not yet. 
we are living in the now and not yet. Meaning that we are living in the reign of Jesus. Jesus reigns now. He rules now from heaven above, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling over us now. He is ruling over the church. He is ruling over the world. He presently reigns. That's now. Very present, very real. And yet, we await the full realization of His reign the realization that Jesus will reign physically, presently among us as our God intends to dwell again with us. What a glorious hope that we have. God intends to dwell again with us. Jesus reigns and Jesus will reign. He is the once and forever King. Beloved, we're to believe this. We are to believe In the reign of Jesus, He is our King. Secondly, we are to find comfort in His rule. We are to find comfort in His rule. The world around us is full of chaos and hopelessness. People are wandering around in darkness trying to create answers to a problem they don't understand. It may be easy to look at your life, to consider the season you are in, and feel hopeless. Why do these things keep happening to me? Why do I continue to grieve? Why do I continue to feel pain? Why do I suffer? The Bible makes statements like the rain falls on the just and the unjust, or suffering and trials produce endurance. But the reality is, those words are not particularly comforting if we aren't first finding our comfort in the rule of Jesus as King. Our comfort as Christians is not that life will be easy, but that regardless of what happens in life, the good and the bad, Jesus is ruling over the chaos. Nothing escapes His sight or His power. And He will do what is just. He will do what is good. And our sovereign God will work in the midst of the good and the bad, the seasons of ease and the seasons of difficulty for His glory and our good as He conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus. I remember hearing a pastor say during the the COVID-19 pandemic that God had COVID on a leash. And a pandemic that seemed to us like a a chaotic and unpredictable devastation was actually in submission to God. Beloved, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of sickness and disease. We live among sinful people. And as the gospel goes forth, as every enemy is made Jesus' footstool, there will come an end to the chaos. Beloved, find comfort in the rule of Jesus. Finally, last thing that we do. Well, there's a lot of things we could do. Last thing in this sermon that we do. Proclaim the gospel loudly. Proclaim the gospel loudly. Worship the Lord your God. Fight for truth. Enjoy this life God has given you. Feast in celebration of God's blessings and preach the gospel. Shout it from the mountaintops that Jesus is the King and He must reign. Beloved, it's easy to lose sight of God's promises when darkness surrounds us. But brothers and sisters, we cannot solely look to our own minuscule time on this earth. 
We have to look at the bigger picture. We have to see how the gospel has penetrated the hearts of men who stood as enemies of God, who hated God, but yet now love Him and are called children. See how the gospel has spread and continues to spread to the ends of the earth. Consider how God softens the heart of those who vehemently oppose Him. Think of your own life. Think of a time when you vehemently opposed God and He said, believe in Me, and you believed. Because He called you to faith and repentance because He is sovereign. He is powerful. And you can't help but offer yourself willingly to Him. That's what Psalm 110 describes for us. The people of, of Adonai offer themselves in willing submission, willing worship to Him because we know He is the Savior King. Consider how God has continued to purify His church and bring her back to sound doctrine and hope in the Gospel when she is strayed. Because Jesus reigns, because everything is being placed in subjection under Him, we can joyfully, gladly, and confidently proclaim the Gospel of life to a lost and dying world. We can work to see the end of wickedness and the rise of righteousness in our society because ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not a prediction, it's a spoiler. If you are here today and you do not know Christ as Savior and King, as Lord, as Adonai, then the call to you is to believe the gospel. To believe, to, to the call to, to, to us as Christians is to continue to believe the gospel and then proclaim the gospel. But the call to the unbeliever, if that describes you, the call to you today is to believe in the gospel of grace. The good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus reigns and his rule will not be thwarted by your unbelief. He is ruling over you even today, whether or not you choose to accept it. And unless you repent and believe in the gospel, unless you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus alone for salvation, you trust in the good news that God saves sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then you are His enemy. And He says that his, that He will destroy His enemies and He will make them the object that He uses to rest His feet. You will bow before Jesus either in reverent worship because He has saved you or in fear knowing the judgment that awaits you. I hope that doesn't scare you because God is kind. And it is in His kindness that you are hearing the Gospel this morning. And so to the unbeliever, repent and believe the Gospel of Jesus. To the Christian, continue to believe. As you proclaim the gospel with boldness, we have hope in a hopeless world. We have comfort and peace in a chaotic world. There's a question and answer on, uh, in your order of service uh, from Keech's Catechism. The question is this, how does Christ execute the office of king? And the answer is that Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. If that doesn't bring you comfort this morning, I don't know what to tell you. Jesus is our once and forever king.
He rules now. He rules forever. He is the greater David. He is who David pointed us to. He's who David saw empowered by the Holy Spirit speaking to the Father. And it is in Him alone that we trust. To Him alone be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.